Holy Father, as we open Your Word tonight, I pray, Father, that we would be refreshed and encouraged. But I pray more, more so, Father, that we would be motivated. That we would be doers of the Word that we hear. I ask You ahead of time, Lord, to implant in us those things tonight which will alter our course more in alignment with You, especially, Lord, if we are out of alignment. I pray, Father, that the feeding that comes tonight would be a feeding for workers of the harvest. And I pray that the strength that we draw from Your Word, from spending time with You, Jesus, would enlighten us with the spirit of revelation to take this awesome truth to a very dark world. I pray, Father, against religiosity. I pray against us leaving these things in the seats. And I ask, Father, You will give each of us this week, between now and Sunday, I just pray, Lord, would You give us opportunity to speak what we hear tonight. Lord, I'm reminded that when Israel brought their offerings to You, You always said, cut off the fat portions, and they were for You. Well, Lord, I pray tonight You would trim the fat off of my teaching. And let the words remain that are your words, your truth. And any of the fat and any of the extra, Lord, would you trim it off and allow us to simply feed on that which makes us strong in the gospel. And for the sake of your kingdom, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. John 7, verse 53. Everyone went to his home. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, He came again into the temple, and all the people were coming to Him, and He sat down and began to teach them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery. And having set her in the center of the court, they said to Him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in adultery in the very act. Now, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women... What then do you say? They were saying this, testing him, so that they might have grounds for accusing him. But when Jesus stooped down, but Jesus stooped down with his finger and wrote on the ground. When they persisted in asking him, he straightened up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. When they heard it, they began to go out one by one, beginning with the older ones. And he was left alone, and the woman where she was, in the center of the court. Straightening up, Jesus said to her, Woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? And she said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, I do not condemn you either. Go. From now on, sin no more. What's up with the brackets? That's my theological question to launch tonight's study with. What is up with the brackets? Do you notice that in your Bibles? Beginning with verse 53 and running all the way down to verse 11. Now some of you have a Bible, perhaps it doesn't even have this story in it at all. Maybe it's placed at the very end of the Gospel of John, or maybe it's in your margin, they write and they say something along the lines of, the ancient manuscripts don't support this story, or it was not found in the oldest manuscripts, therefore we're unclear as to whether or not it is uh, should be in the Gospel. 
This story has been both criticized and cherished for 2,000 years. It's been treasured by many, tossed out by some as fictional fabrication. Let me just ask you this question. Does it ring true of Jesus? Sounds like something he would do. Sure looks like his behavior. Sure fits in with the gospel of his grace. John 1.17 says the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. And I can't think of a more beautiful instance in any of the gospels where both grace and truth are realized. So why did the translators go and throw in the brackets and throw us off? Again, because the text is truly missing in some of the oldest Greek manuscripts. Some, like some English translations, put this story at the end of the Gospel of John like a postscript. Some of the old manuscripts have it there and just stuck at the end as though they didn't know what to do with it. Curiously, and I'll give you a little more information about this on Sunday, but some leave a blank space where verses 53 through 11 should be. Why is that? Well, we'll talk about that on Sunday, but I will tell you tonight, and I think it's important for our study tonight to understand, I believe it's absolutely authentic. I believe it was recorded by John by the inspiration of the Spirit of God and that the story belongs right here. I'll even show you tonight where I think Jesus refers to this shameful scene later in the chapter. We'll deal with the story in depth on Sunday, but keep it in the back of your minds as we pick up in verse 12 what has just happened here in the courts of the temple. Verse 12. Then Jesus again spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. And we have just come to the second I am statement of Jesus. The first you may recall, I am the bread of life, John 6.35. Now, in between there, we also heard Jesus say on the water as he was walking across the water in the storm, when the apostles cried out in fear, he said, I am, don't be afraid, I am. And I believe he was intending to imply the great I am at that point. But this is the second actual statement in John. There are seven of these where he uses I am and then follows it with a a clause. I am the bread of life. I am now the light of the world. Now it's important to note also when and where Jesus made this great claim. So look down at verse 20 in the passage. And it tells us these words he spoke in The treasury as he taught in the temple. So let me give you a little explanation here. And I'm going to ask you to use your picture brains and see if you can imagine this. On the temple mount sat the temple complex. Surrounding the entirety of the temple complex was Solomon's porch. Okay. Once you came inside the temple complex, Solomon's porch surrounding, you came first into the court of the Gentiles that went all the way around the temple. From the court of the Gentiles, and any of the Gentiles then could go into that court. That's where the buying and selling was going on that so infuriated Jesus. But from the court of the Gentiles, you would go up steps into gates. The steps led through walls that were called the sacred enclosure. 
And through these steps, on the eastern side was the beautiful gate, the eastern gate of the temple. You would come up these steps through that gate and find yourself in the court of women. Also where the treasury was. So when it tells us that Jesus was teaching in the treasury, He's in the court of women. From the court of women, you would have to go through then another gate and you would come into the court of Israel where the women couldn't go, but the men could go. From there, you would go through yet another gate and you would come into the court of the priests and that's where the altar and the bronze laver were. From there on into the actual temple itself which held the holy place and then behind the veil, the holy of holies. So Jesus is in the court of women. It was a favorite place for rabbis to teach. They would often stake out a claim somewhere in the temple courts. And their students would come sit around them. And this would be a common thing in the temple in that day. You could walk into the temple area and see rabbis seated around with their students sitting at their feet learning and studying the word together. Jesus apparently, because we see him here a few times in the Gospels, he chose this spot here in the women's court, in the treasury. You might remember Jesus is in the treasury when he sees the the widow drop her two mites into the offering. And so Jesus is there, and He gathers there to teach and to talk to His disciples and anyone else who wants to listen in the court of women in the treasury. Jesus sat there to teach, and it was here that He not only invited His disciples, but He invited all Israel, calling out on this particular day, I am the light of the world. I'm the light of the world. What a claim. This is not something a typical rabbi would say. I'm the light of the world, he says. Now, it's not a new concept to the Jewish people. In fact, it's throughout the Hebrew Scriptures referring to talking about God. God is the light. God is the only source of light. All the way back in Genesis 1 verse 3, God said, let there be light, and there was light. Why? Because God is light. Psalm 27, verse 1, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the defense of my life. Whom shall I dread? In Isaiah 49, verse 6, talking about the servant of the Lord, Messiah, Isaiah writes, He says, It is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also make you a light of the nations. So that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth, the light of the world. Psalm 119.105 tells us, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Isaiah 9 verse 2, The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. And you Bible students know Isaiah 9, 1 and 2 is talking about Galilee of the Gentiles. Proof positive that in the Scriptures that the Messiah would come to Galilee and come out of Galilee, though the Jewish leaders misunderstood that as we saw in our last study. But I like this one, Psalm 36, verse 9, because it encapsulates two ideas, two concepts. One that we just looked at on Sunday and the second that we come to tonight. Psalm 36, verse 9 says, With you is the fountain of life. Remember that living water, the spring of living water, and the the water libation festival that would take place during Sukkot, the Feast of Booths? You are the fountain of life, and in your light we see light. 
the fountain and the light. Now listen to this. It's now the great day after the great day of Sukkot. Actually, it's not a great day at all. It's just the day after. The great day was the last day of the festival, and now it's just the next day. It's kind of the down day. It's like the day after the holidays, the day after you get back from vacation. You know, it's just, it's everything back to normal. Get back into the groove of things. It's like the first day of school after summer for, for our students. The day after Sukkot, the Feast of Booths. And even as the dust is settling from the disturbance of the Pharisees, dragging this woman caught in adultery before Jesus, Jesus calls out another amazing picture of Himself connected to the Feast of Booths. The water libation, He who comes to Me will not thirst, the rivers of living water will flow from His innermost being, Jesus had said. And now He goes to a second place, something relative to exactly what had just taken place across the week of the Feast of Tabernacles. Some have referred to it as the celebration of illumination. And here's the thing. It took place right there in the women's court. For in the women's court, four massive lampstands were set up, one in each corner. Huge lampstands. To to light them took a ladder, and the young priest would climb up that ladder, bearing four massive bags of oil, because up on top of these huge lampstands were these great big bowls that would hold the oil. And these young priests would climb up there on the first evening of Sukkot, First evening of the Feast of Tabernacles, they joyfully scaled these ladders with these receptacles filled with oil. They inserted wicks into these great big bowls. The wicks were made out of the used up robes, the linen robes of the priests. Washed and clean, but they were, they were old, tattered, and they would use them for the wicks in these things. That's how big the lamps themselves were, four of them on each one of the four huge lampstands. They climbed up and they ignited these candlesticks to the oohs and the ahs of the people standing around. And it was said to be absolutely glorious. The Mishnah says there was not a courtyard in Jerusalem that did not reflect the light of the house of water drawing. Festival of water libation. And they called the whole temple complex the house of water drawing during the Feast of Tabernacles. And so you can imagine the celebratory spirit on the first night, that first evening of Sukkot, as those, those big massive lampstands just went and lit up the fire from them, illuminating all of Jerusalem. Can you imagine the solid gold inlay of the temple and those white stones reflecting that light everywhere? It was said that the blazing fire from those lampstands on the Temple Mount could be seen over a hundred miles away from Jerusalem. So bright was this glorious light. And the whole thing was reminiscent, like Sukkot, celebrating that journey through the wilderness and God's great provision, the water in the wilderness. This also celebrated the fire by night that led the people. The cloud by day, fire by night, the Shekinah, glory of God as He cared for and looked after His people. And there in the women's court, and most likely those lampstands are still there. Jesus is perhaps sitting in the shadow of one of these great lampstands the day after when He calls out, I am the light of the world. I'm the light of the world. 
He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. The lampstands, maybe they were being carted off even as Jesus spoke. What a wonderful thing to say. It's like you thought Christmas was over. It's not. You thought summer vacation had ended. I'm still here. You thought the light had been doused, but I am the light of the world, he cries out. What a marvelous teacher. The light of the world. McGee calls this the highest claim of divinity yet by Jesus in the Gospel of John. John would later write in 1 John 1.5, this is the message we have heard from him and announced to you that God is light and in Him is no darkness at all. Back in John chapter 1, verse 4, in Him was life, and the life was the light of men. John 1, 9, there was the true light, which coming into the world enlightens every man. John likes contrast. And you'll notice this throughout his gospel. He'll take major themes and contrast them one against the other. And one of his big themes is light versus darkness. He's always pointing out if it's dark or if it's light. You'll note when we get there, in John chapter 13, when Judas leaves to betray Jesus, John writes, and then it was night. Because this theme of of the light of the world in Jesus and the darkness of the world in and of itself is very apparent to John. Light versus darkness. And the sad truth is, as John tells us, as Jesus spoke, Mankind persists on loving the dark. Deceit has become commonplace in the news. Everyone goes, well, that's just the way it is. Of course you're not going to tell the truth. We all know that. We get it. I'm not talking about anything in particular this week. And the great thing is on the tape, you know, years from now, if we're still around and someone listens to this teaching, they're not going to know what we're talking about. Why are they laughing? What was happening that week? (laughs) Same thing that happens every week on the news. We see the dark. We see the lies. We see the deceit. People thinking that it's the best way to live just to kind of keep things under wrap and not walk in the light as He is in the light. Oh no, if we did that, we might have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus might actually cleanse us from all transgression. We live in a dark, dark world. Jesus said as much, remember in His conversation with Nicodemus back in John 3.19, this is the judgment that the light has come into the world. And men love the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. The charge, the electric excitement, the enthusiasm people get out of furtive and devious things, it's it's sin. You know, the thrill of the night, the the shadows, it's it's all part of the lure of evil. And Jesus came in the daylight, in the broad light of day, saying, I am the light of the world. He offers a wide open, honest invitation to come out of the dark and into the light. And if you don't want to do that, if you find yourself scurrying about in the shadows, it's because of the sin nature. 
And something that we've got to be firm on and hold fast to, I believe, as a church in a very dark age, is the fact that the excitement of darkness is sin. And the sin is not a good thing. It's a luring thing. It's a lusting thing. Jesus came in the light. Jesus said further on in John 12.35, For a little while longer the light is among you. Walk while you have the light, so that darkness will not overtake you. He who walks in the darkness does not know where he goes. Well, that's true, isn't it? I mean, it's true on a practical sense. If you tried to walk across your house in the middle of the night to get a glass of water and forgot where the coffee table was, you know that those who walk in the dark, dark don't know where they're going. Same thing spiritually. When you're in the dark, you walk in blindness, you don't have a clue where you're headed. Oh, you might think, you know, the devil will deceive, making you think that, you know, I, I, I got this one. It's cool. Jesus says, you don't know where you're going. He says, while you have the light, believe in the light so that you may become sons of light. Now, here's something amazing about the light of the world. That is a character trait that Jesus claimed for Himself that prior to Him claiming it only belonged to God. But when Jesus claims it, guess what? He shares it with those who follow Him. Remember? Sermon on the Mount. What He said? You are the light of the world. What? No, Jesus, I thought you were the light of the world. Jesus says, well, I am, but... Matthew 5.14, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Okay, so which one is it? Is he the light of the world or am I the light of the world? Are we the light of the world? Who's the light of the world? Are we all just lights? We're two kinds of light. Jesus is the light of the world, the source of light. He's the oil in the lamp. He's the fire that blazes. Like the pictures we talked about on Sunday, we're just lamps. We require the oil of His Spirit to empower us to shine. He is the one who blazes in us. Another way to look at it, and I kind of like this, John Corson points this out. Genesis 1.16 tells us, God made two great lights. The greater light to govern the day, and the lesser light to govern the night. That is like us and the Lord. Jesus is like the greater light. Jesus the Son has the light of the Son. He's the great light, the Son. And we are the lesser lights. We're like a bunch of moons. Don't take this the wrong way. Because you could. We're not to go about, I'm not going to say it. (laughs) We're like the moon in that we reflect the sun. Right? We see the moon in the sky because it's reflecting the sun in the same way God made the two great lights, the greater light to govern the day, the lesser light to govern the night. Which means we are going to push back into darkness. We are to reflect Jesus, the light of the sun, into the darkness of the night of the world. That is the calling of followers of Jesus Christ. But understand, the moon has a dark side. The moon has a dark side when it turns away from the sun. And for you and me, 
When we turn from the sun, we go dark. You want to walk in the light of life? Face the sun. Eyes on Jesus. Don't look away. Make your direction toward Him in all that you do. There's another time that the moon goes dark. And that's when the light of the sun is eclipsed by the world. And so with us, we can be eclipsed by the world. The light that would normally reflect off of me. Man, if I'm focused on worldly things, if I've got worldly desires, if I'm about the world, well then guess what? I've got the world in between me and the sun and it's going to cause a lunar eclipse. And I will not shine the light of the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ like I've been called to shine. And it's throughout Scripture, gang, that we are called to be different. That we are called to reflect His glory. That we are called, Paul says, 1 Thessalonians 5.5, sons of light and sons of day. We are not of night nor of darkness. And yet far too many of us struggle in the dark. Enjoy the dark. You all know, I don't even have to tell you, but the, the level of pornography addiction among Christian men is astounding. It's darkness, guys. Women, you got your problems. I don't know any of your problems because I don't understand women, but you got stuff. <laughs> you got your dark. Face the sun. Don't love the things of the world. That you be eclipsed by the world and can't shine the light of the sun. 1 John 1 7 says if we have said that we have fellowship with him, if we say we have fellowship with him and yet we walk in the darkness, we lie. And we do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin. And I'll tell you what, as far as our interaction as a church fellowship, that is one of the most, if not the most critical verses we can know. That we are to walk in the light as He is in the light. Everything's open and honest. You can check all my emails if you want to. I got nothing to hide. That we live open and honestly together. You know what? Jesus says, if I have a problem, if my brother has a problem with me, I go to my brother. If my sister is upset with me, it's my responsibility to go to my sister. Why? Walk in the light. Because what happens when we walk in the light is we have fellowship. We walk in the darkness, we don't have fellowship. Why? Because we don't trust each other. We don't believe that we can be safe and secure with one another. Tragically, I have worked in that church. I have been in that arrangement of Christians where there was no trust. That is not how we're called. Walk in the light as He is in the light and we'll have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. Now, here's the thing. The leaders of Israel were walking in the dark and didn't even know it. As we'll see when we get to John chapter 9. They were blind, but they couldn't see it. They they didn't know. Verse 13, after Jesus makes this glorious statement, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in the darkness, but have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, you're testifying about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Now I want you to note what just happened. 
group of Pharisees drag the woman in front of Jesus and throw her down on the ground right there in the court of women. Jesus says, go ahead and start stoning her, but just be sure you are sinless. The older Pharisees leave. The younger ones, part of that little group, slowly slip off, realizing they look stupid. He doesn't condemn the woman. He tells her, go your way, sin no more. Then He looks out at His disciples who are still there in the courtyard. And any people who might still be there, He says, I am the light of the world. As, as if by explanation of what He just did for this woman, drawing her out of darkness, I'm the light of the world. And then the Pharisees start slipping back in. And there in verse 13, they say, you're testifying about yourself, your testimony is not true. Man, they were good lawyers. And they took the law, and like many lawyers do today, and if you're a lawyer, no offense, (laughs) but they tweak it to say what they needed to say, when they needed to say, what they wanted to say. They bend it, they find loopholes. That's what the law, that's what you can do with the law. Find your way around it rather than just keep it. And so these lawyers, these legalists, these Pharisees do that and they say, Jesus, unless you produce a second witness that you're the light of the world, your testimony is not true. You have to have two witnesses. Torah law says so. They tweaked the law right out of its meaning. You see, they get this from Deuteronomy 19. Let me read it to you. Deuteronomy 19.15 A single witness shall not rise up against a man on account of any iniquity or any sin which he has committed. On the evidence of two or three witnesses, a matter shall be confirmed. If a malicious witness rises up against a man to accuse him of wrongdoing, then both the men who have the dispute shall stand before the Lord, before the priests and the judges who will be in office in those days. See, gotta have two witnesses. Well, here's the problem. Jesus wasn't claiming something against another person. He was claiming something about himself. He wasn't drawing someone up on charges. He wasn't accusing anybody. He just said, I'm the light of the world. And so they use their twisted view of Scripture to try and say, we don't have to listen to you. So Jesus says, all right. And he gives four reasons that his testimony about himself is true. Four reasons. The first two are from and future. From and future. Verse 14, Jesus answered and said to them, Even if I testify about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I came from and where I am going. You don't know where I come from or where I am going. From and future. Jesus says, here's the first thing that that supports my statement that I am the light of the world. I know where I'm from. Do you know where you're from? If someone says California, I'm going to pop you one. (laughs) Do you know where you're really from? Someone might say, yeah. Psalm 139.13. For you formed my inward parts. You wove me in my mother's womb. That's where I'm from. Know where Jesus is from? Micah 5.2 His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. He knew where He was from. Now understand, sometimes Jesus says things that the Pharisees are just going to go right over their head. He knows it will. They're not coming to Him with faith. 
But he says things that are claims that he's making of himself that here we are 2,000 years later, we can read them and we can just sit back and go, wow. I know where I'm from, Jesus says. Mankind doesn't even know where it's from. Scientists keep moving the boundary lines of time. We've talked about this. You know, it's, it's interesting. When you read some of the, the commentaries in the 19th century, some of the older commentaries, they refer to the age of Earth. And they refer to it being a very short amount of time. That was the standard opinion of most people back then. It wasn't until November 24th, 1859, that that opinion began to shift when Charles Darwin published... Here's the real title. It's not just Origin of Species. Here's the title. On the Origin of Species by Means of Natural Selection or the Preservation of Favored Races in the Struggle for Life. Hitler loved it. You realize that the whole theory of evolution... Natural selection and Darwinism supported, and I would say today supports racism. Survival of the fittest, man. Strongest shall win. Hitler absolutely believed in it, which is why he wanted to wipe out the Jews. It's why he developed the Aryan race, the super race. It was all a bunch of lies. But what's funny to me is ever since Darwin, scientists who have been trying to take his theory and force it into a place that they call fact have been moving the boundary of time. And now we're at four point something billion years ago. Because for natural selection to even work, to even have a chance of working, you've got to have tons and tons of time. Still doesn't work. If I took a box of alphabet cereal, they still have that? That was one of my favorites as a kid. And I poured it all out on the ground, how much time would it take for it to spell out the Declaration of Independence? That's how ridiculous the whole theory is. We just need more time. And so they move the boundary line because science doesn't know where we came from. Jesus knew where he came from. As a matter of fact, Darwin could have saved a lot of time and confusion by just going to the light of the world, Jesus Christ. Jesus was from days of eternity. Jesus says in Revelation 1.8, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Now a Jehovah's Witness would read that and say, wait a minute, wait a minute. No, 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 no. Jesus didn't say that. The Lord God said that. Who was and who is and who is to come. The Almighty. It's Jehovah. Okay. Well, I'll give you that one. God said that. Explain to me Revelation 22, verse 12. Behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me to render to every man according to what he has done. Who said that? Who's coming quickly? Jesus is. Okay. What's the very next verse say? I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. It's Jesus. He knows where He's from. How can Jesus' testimony be valid? He knows where He's from, and He knows where He's going. He can say, I am the light of the world, because He is the light of the world. He is speaking absolute truth. He comes from the Father. He goes to the Father. He is one with the Father. He is the light of the world. So, from and future, the third uh, reason here is flesh. Flesh. Verse 15. 
You judge according to the flesh. I am not judging anyone. Now hang on a second. When did the Pharisees judge according to the flesh? They just did. The woman caught in adultery. And this is one of those references, I believe Jesus is referring to what just happened. You judge according to the flesh. You look at this woman and all you saw was fleshly sin. I looked at her and I saw her broken heart. I saw her shame. I saw her embarrassment. I saw her fear. You saw a way to entrap me. Now I'm adding all this in. That's not what Jesus said, but I think that this is making a strong case when He says, you judge according to the flesh. I am not judging anyone. Who refused to cast a stone of judgment? Jesus. 1 Samuel 16.7 tells us, God sees not as man sees, for a man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. God says, I look at the heart. Jesus says, I am the light of the world because God looks at the heart. I look at the heart. You get it? Verse 16. He says, but even if I do judge... And that word if there in the Greek, aeon, it's if ever or whenever. It doesn't imply that he may not judge. It it more implies when I do judge. Eventually when I judge. Even when I do judge, my judgment is true. What's he saying? Well, in verse 15, I'm not judging anyone. That's because in his first coming, he did not come to judge anyone. He came to save. But in his second coming... Even if I do judge, my judgment is true. For I am not alone in it, but I am the Father who sent me. This is a Father-Son business. That's the fourth reason I can say I'm the light of the world. Jesus might say, the Father. From. I know where I'm from. I know my future. I don't judge by the flesh. And I am calling on as my greatest witness, the Father. Father and Son together in complete unanimity. Jesus said back in John 5.22, Not even the Father judges anyone, but He has given all judgment to the Son. So that all will honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. When I judge, Jesus says, it's true. When I make a judgment, it is absolutely spot on righteous. How can you say that, Jesus? Well, I'm the light of the world. Psalm 9 verse 8 says, He will judge the world in righteousness. He will execute judgment for the peoples with equity. Father and Son together. Look at verse 17. Even in your law, it has been written that the testimony of two men is true. So Jesus is saying, okay, I'll give you the Deuteronomy 19. I, verse 18, am he who testifies about myself, and the Father who sent me testifies about me. There's your two. You want two witnesses? You got it, baby. Me and the Father. Father and Son. It's a Father-Son business. But this is absolutely striking. And it's part of what upset the Pharisees so often. Jesus doesn't just speak for the Father. He doesn't just speak on behalf of the Father. No, when Jesus speaks, get this, Father speaks. When the Word comes out of Jesus' mouth, 
It is the Word of God. When the Son says something, the Father is saying it. Jesus said nothing of His own accord. Everything He spoke was from the Father. Every word out of His mouth was of the Father, the Father and Son, that oneness. And He will take it to the next degree when He talks later in John 14 saying, I and the Father are one. Verse 19. So they were saying to Him, Where is your Father? Or who's your Daddy? Where's your Father? They still don't get it. They're not putting Father and Son together. They don't realize the Father He's talking about is not Joseph. It's not some human being. He's talking about God. Where's your Father? Jesus answered, You know neither Me nor My Father. If you knew Me, you would know My Father also. These words He spoke in the treasury, as we read, as He taught in the temple, and no one seized Him because His hour had not yet come. You might ask the question, why didn't the Jewish leaders accept Jesus for who He was? And Jesus just gave us the answer. Because they didn't know the Father. If they had known the Father, when the Son came along, they would know the Son. My dad and I sat in a booth in the corner of the Fiddler's Three restaurant. A little restaurant down in Southern California years ago. I was probably junior high, I think, sitting there with my dad and a couple of ladies from two booths over came over and said, you have to be father and son because you look so much alike. No, I wasn't balding at that point in my life. (laughs) Facial structure. I have a picture from my daughter's wedding of me standing closer to the camera. It's a side angle and I wasn't looking. I didn't even know the picture was taken until after the fact. I'm standing there looking forward and my dad is standing about 10 feet away looking the same direction and it's almost like a double take. I'm quite a bit younger, of course. No, I mean, it's scary how much we look alike. When people see my dad, and some of you have, you go, that's that's Rick's dad. It's got to be Rick's dad. And see, when they saw Jesus coming, if they had seen the Father, if they knew the Father, they would have known the Son. They would have accepted Him as Messiah if they had known the Father in the first place. But they didn't know the Father. And that was the issue with the Jewish leadership. They were so into themselves, they were blind to who God really was, they didn't know the Father or they would have seen the light of the world. Verse 21. Then He said again to them, If I go away, or I go away and you will seek me, and will die in your sin, where I am going you cannot come. Listen to that one more time. I go away, and you will seek me, and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. Jesus re-emphasizes here what He had said just a day before. John 7.34 And we talked about this contrast between those who reject Him and those who accept Him. If you reject Him, where He's going, you cannot come. If you accept Him, well, in my Father's house, there are many, many rooms. 
If it were not so, I would have told you, John 14, 2, For I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to Myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Where I am going, you get to go. If you accept Me. If you don't, where I am going, you cannot come. Even if you look for Me, you're not going to find Me. You're going to die in your sin. And Jesus takes this truth to an even more solemn and serious place. Verse 22. So the Jews were saying, well, surely He will not kill Himself, will He? Since He says, where I'm going, you cannot come. Is He saying He wants to commit suicide? What's wrong with this guy? And where I'm going, you cannot come. And He was saying to them, you are from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. Therefore I said to you that you will die in your sins. Get this, for unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. The translators added the he. The he is not there. Jesus says, unless you believe, ego a me, you will die in your sins. Unless you believe that I am. Unless you believe that I am God. I am the light of the world. I am the bread from heaven. I am that I am. Unless you believe this, you will die in your sin. This is what I would call the tragedy of the gospel. A tragic truth, but an absolute truth. That unless, get this, unless you believe in Jesus for who He claimed to be, you will die in your sin. That means if you believe in Jesus as a great prophet, and that's all, you will die in your sin. If you believe in Jesus as a Son of God among many and not God, you will die in your sin. For years we have been going over this and we have been going over it again and again and again. And I've asked the Lord, why does this keep coming up? I finally realized because it is so absolutely critical to your salvation and mine that we understand Jesus and believe Him for who He said He is. I am. Wait, Rick, you're drawing a line in the sand. You're you're being awfully fundamentalist. (laughs) Unless you believe that I am, Jesus said. You'll die in your sin. I don't hear any middle ground there. I don't hear him saying, well, if you just name me, you know, if you just say, well, I know something about Jesus, or if your religion uses my name or uses some persona of me with my name, that's fine, no big deal. As long as you get the J in there, capitalize it, please. No. You gotta believe that I am. Or you will die in your sin. Period. It's perhaps the most definite statement of dying in sin, of an eternal death that Jesus makes. And He doesn't make it lightly. And if that rattles you, it should. We could use some rattling in the church, Les. We could use a healthy dose of the fear of the Lord. 
We could use a dose of the realization that there are close personal friends of ours who don't know Jesus, who don't know Him as I am, and if He came tonight, they would die in their sins. What are we going to do about it? God is calling on this fellowship to do more than we have ever done before. And not to our own growth and glory. But He is calling on this fellowship to boldly preach the Gospel. To be light in the darkness. And we will not be light in the darkness unless we know Him for who He says, I am. I am that I am. Unless we're willing to be absolute in our faith, even as He is absolute in His Word. This is life or death. We are not a social organization. We are not gathering to tickle ears and and have a nice little fellowship and hug on each other every now and then and say, help, you're having a good day. That is not why we're here. That's all good stuff. Don't get me wrong. But we are here to preach the gospel to a dying world. We are here to be light where there right now is a growing and increasing darkness. And we will not be light in the darkness if we pull back and say, hey, whatever you think about Jesus is cool. You will die in your sins, Jesus said. This is eternal life-saving work and there is nothing more serious in your life or mine than knowing Jesus for who He is. Verse 25. So they were saying to Him, after He said, unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins, they were saying, who are you? Right question, wrong attitude. Who are you? And Jesus said to them, What have I been saying to you from the beginning? Okay, well let's review. Light of the world, living water, bread of heaven, bronze serpent that saves. If you look at him, ladder to heaven. The Word made flesh who dwells among us. What have I been saying to you all this time, Jesus says. And we can apply that to us. Who do you say that I am? Jesus said to the apostles, Matthew 16. Who do you say that I am? Well, I I mean, I guess the answer should be, the answer is, what has Jesus been saying to us from the very beginning? What has He been saying over and over again and again? Verse 26. I have many things to speak and to judge concerning you, but... He who sent me is true, and the things which I heard from him, these I speak to the world. In other words, Jesus is saying, oh, there's more to come. I've got so much I would like to unload right now. But Jesus says, I'm only telling you the things the Father intended me to say. That's so cool. I'm right in line with the Father. I'm telling you exactly what God wants you to hear right now in this age as Jesus is speaking. This is all you need here. All you need know. I have a lot more. And I believe the lot more comes with about Acts chapter 1. Maybe Acts, maybe chapter 2. When we start to see all the things that God would speak. And more I think, I can't wait till the millennial kingdom. I know many of you agree with me on this. But to sit at Jesus' feet there in Jerusalem. And to listen to all the things that He has to say, wow. 
Man, shut me up. And let's listen to Jesus. He only says what the Father intends Him to say. Verse 27, they did not realize that He had been speaking to them about the Father. So verse 28, Jesus said, when you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am. What happened when they crucified Jesus? Well, let's see, the veil was rent in two from top to bottom. Massive earthquake, darkness covered the land, the rocks split, the dead were raised out of their tombs and walking around Jerusalem. I feel pretty good. (laughs) When you lift me up, then you will know that I am. I guarantee there were Pharisees at the crucifixion when He breathed His last, when He cried out, It is finished! And He hung His head and His last breath left His body. And Jesus died on the cross and all these things began to take place. I guarantee there were Pharisees standing there who went, "Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. Did it change their hearts? Probably not. But Jesus said, You're going to know. And I do nothing on my own initiative, but I speak these things as the Father taught me. And He who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to Him. Can you say that? I was so convicted. I've read over that verse probably a hundred times this week. I only do the things that are pleasing to Him. Man, I'm convicted because I spend an inordinate amount of time in my life doing the things that are pleasing to Rick. Doing the things that are pleasing to me, I want to be pleased. I want to be happy. I'll please my wife and my kids and my family and my friends and maybe some of you. (laughs) Jesus says, I only do... What pleases the Father? doesn't matter if it pleases me. doesn't matter if it pleases humanity. certainly doesn't matter if it pleases the Pharisees. I only do what pleases the Father. His declaration of doing what pleases the Father, by the way, is never contradicted in Scripture, even by His enemies. I think that's fascinating. Not a one of them could look at Jesus and say, Well, you were unrighteous here. Well, I know about that kind of shady deal over there. No. Even Judas, Matthew 27, verse 4, said, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. John 5.18 says, For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill Him because He was a filthy sinner. No. Because He not only was breaking the Sabbath, or so they thought but was calling God His own Father, making Himself equal with God. Even His enemies said, you know what, we we can't get Him on any behavioral issue. He's always righteous. So we've got to trip Him up. We've got to call in some false witnesses. That's the only way we're going to take this guy down. And Pontius Pilate, three times in the trial of Jesus, John 18.38... John 19.4 and John 19.6. Three times Pilate said, I find no guilt in him. This guy is flawless. Why? I always do the things that are pleasing to him. You want to be more righteous in your walk? 
You want to live a little more holy perhaps than you did today or yesterday? Seek to do the things that are pleasing to the Lord. Let that be your standard. Not keeping law, but pleasing God. And your life will be a blessing to Him. In everything Jesus did, He always pleased the Father. Verse 30. Just as He spoke these things, or as He spoke these things, many came to believe in Him. He's there in the court of women. And all those standing around. His own disciples are there. Some of the Pharisees standing around. They're the ones throwing out, you know, banter with Jesus. But there are a lot of people standing there going, Wow, this guy's, this guy's right on. This is Messiah. Light of the world. I believe it. I believe He really is. Verse 31, So Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed in Him, almost in an aside, He says, If you continue in My Word, then you are truly disciples of Mine, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. He says that directly to those who He knows are His disciples, who want to follow Him. And they're drawn by His words, and they're listening to what He has to say. You will know the truth, and the truth... Oh, the truth will make you free. Sound familiar? What a famous statement. Veritas vos liberabit. And I know I completely massacred the Latin. But that's what it is in Latin. Veritas vos liberabit. Or something like that. (laughs) Universities, colleges, seats of learning love it. You will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Johns Hopkins University, University of Portland, even Caltech. (laughs) You will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Ironically, the King James variant of this, and ye shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free, is etched in stone on the original headquarters of the CIA. How does that work? You shall know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And academics, and educators, and spies. <laughs> you know what? Few of them even know it comes from Jesus. Fewer still have any idea what it really means. Oh, to the professor, to the academic, knowledge is freedom. Knowledge, that's, that's where you're set free. The more you know, hey, knowledge for the sake of knowledge ain't freedom. It is slavery. Ask any student. And what does the Bible say? Of making many books, Ecclesiastes 12, 12, there is no end and much study is a weariness of the flesh. I'm sorry, knowledge does not set you free. Well, so what does Jesus mean? The truth will set you free. I am the truth. John 14, 6. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And so as an aside, again, to His disciples, you will know the truth. And the truth will make you free. Two of the I am statements. I am the light of the world. I am the truth. The light is the truth. The truth is the light. Jesus is the only truth who truly sets us free. He's the light of the world from which sin and darkness and all that entangles us and captures us and enslaves us, all that flees away 
from the light of the world. From Jesus. He is freedom from the slavery of our sin. He is freedom to our glorious God. He is freedom even from the flesh that withers and dies. You want to be free of this? Not me, but you. You know, your own flesh. You want to be free of the the pains and the aches? Cheryl had to go in and have an MRI today on her wrist because something's torn. It just hurts. Cute little Cheryl. I'm like, welcome to the 50s. (laughs) I know, I'm sleeping on the couch tonight. (laughs) Isaiah 61 verse 1 says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because He's anointed me to bring you good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives, freedom to prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. The truth shall set you free. The truth is Jesus. Romans 8.2 The law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. Romans 8.15 You have not received a spirit of slavery leading again to fear, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we, we cry out, Abba, Father, I'm free! I am free in Jesus! Galatians 5.1 It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. And we Christians can be sometimes. When we get legalistic, when we start to go back to law and requirement, Paul would say, you were set free by the blood of Christ. Christ has set us free. And this is not some kind of religious mysticism. Oh, Christ has set us free. Oh, I'm free. I don't know what that means, but I'm free. This is incredibly practical. There is a practical clause here when Jesus says this. Don't skip over it. It's the modus operandi of freedom. Freedom's M.O. Here it is, right here. He said to them, verse 31, If you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine, And you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. How do I get the freedom that comes in Christ? Continue in His Word. Follow after Him. If if you do that, Jesus says, stay in My Word, you will know Me, and I will set you free. You will know the truth. The truth will make you free. See, that's discipleship. Discipleship is simply staying where He is. It's what you're doing tonight and more. It's remaining in His Word. It's those who keep reading, keep studying, keep listening, keep receiving, keep coming to me, Jesus said, to keep drinking. Remember that? Back in chapter 7. If anyone's thirsty, let him keep coming to me and keep drinking. He who believes in me, as the Scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. That's freedom in Christ. If you keep coming to Him, just keep coming to Him. Let it be about Jesus. Not about church. Not about keeping some set of rules. 
but about being where Jesus is, staying alongside Jesus. Paul put it this way, if we live by the Spirit, let's walk by the Spirit. Verse 33, they answered him, We are Abraham's descendants and have never yet been enslaved to anyone. How is it you say you will become free? Now, based on this statement in verse 33, this is not coming from his disciples who he just gave the aside of freedom to. This is now the religious stuffed shirts who are still trying to figure him out. And they make this outlandish, ridiculous comment. Listen to it again. We are Abraham's descendants and have never yet been enslaved to anyone. Excuse me? Let's go over history. 400 years of bondage in Egypt to start. Then you came into the promised land and how about 400 more years that you spent under the oppression of the surrounding nations in the days of the judges? You know what the judges were? They were deliverers because the people kept getting enslaved. So now we're up to 800 years. Have they forgotten about the fish hooks in their jaws from the Assyrians who dragged off the northern kingdom of Israel into captivity and dispersion never to rise as a nation again? How about the 70 years of captivity in Babylon? Add it all up. We're over a thousand years of (laughs) non-freedom. A thousand years of slavery and bondage and oppression. What about after that when they came back from Babylon? They were oppressed by the Persians. And then little Israel, little Judah was oppressed by the Greeks who split into four nations and were warring between themselves and fighting Egypt and all, everybody's going at it right there meeting in Israel to fight. They were under severe oppression. Just 150, 160 years prior to Jesus, Antiochus Epiphanes comes in and oppresses Judah again. Takes over control of Jerusalem. Slaughters a pig in the temple and spatters pig blood all over the walls. We've never been enslaved to anyone. You know what this tells me? It is... It's such a stark picture that those who are blind and enslaved don't know that they are. It's a remarkable picture of the blind subordination of sin. Remember, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 10, these things happen to them as an example for us upon whom the ends of the ages have come. We look at Israel and we learn by example what happened. We were not never enslaved. We're not enslaved anyone. We're Abraham's people. And they couldn't see. It was a ridiculous statement. In the same way, the unrepentant sinner rarely recognizes that he or she is enslaved to sin. Why don't you come with me to church and check out Jesus? No, I'm fine. I'm good. You're an alcoholic. How is that fine and good? Let me pray with you. Let me tell you more about Jesus. No, it's all right. You're cheating on your taxes, man. You're enslaved. And people who are enslaved, they get so comfortable with their slavery. It's like the vast majority of Jews who stayed in Babylon when they received their freedom. That's good. We're fine. We got a thing going on here. I got my business here in Babylon. I'm comfortable here. You're in slavery. 
And a life outside of Jesus is a life of slavery. And often it is not until we have been saved that we look back and go, I can't believe how enslaved I was. I was. I was captured by the enemy. Why didn't I see that at the time? Because when we're in the midst of sin, we don't see it. And Christians, take, take note of this. Often when we are in the midst of some kind of sin behavior, caught up in the hurricane of the sin, we don't even know what's going on. Which is why Jesus says, I'm the light of the world. He who comes to me will never walk in darkness. Come to me and have your eyes open. Because man, you get into the dark mess of your life, you're not even going to know when you've been captured. Verse 34. Jesus answered them and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. Question. Did the woman caught in adultery think through what she was doing? Do you think perhaps prior to getting together with the guy, and that's interesting, he's not mentioned, we'll deal with that on Sunday. But prior to this liaison, did she sit down and pray about it? Did she think it through? You know, this is darkness. This is not light. This is sin. Or did she ignore it like so many do? You realize that she was caught on the day after Sukkot. And I guarantee you, because she was a Jewish woman, or they wouldn't have pulled her in front of Jesus to be stoned by the Jewish law. I guarantee you, she was at Sukkot. She's there in Jerusalem. Sukkot's going on. Everybody's at Sukkot. And the day after, she's caught in the act of adultery. I'm not pointing this out to shame her. I'm pointing it out to say, she didn't even know. She didn't realize in that moment, she was in slavery. And Jesus says, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. Man, did she worship at the festivals? Was she there dancing at the water libation? Was she praising during the lighting of the lamps? Did she know she was a slave? Slaves often don't. Romans 6.16 says, Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death, or of obedience resulting in righteousness. And I love how Paul puts this, Romans 6.18, And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. That's your choice. You can be enslaved to sin, which leads to death. Or you can be a bondservant of Jesus Christ and a slave of righteousness, which leads to life and light and freedom. Paul makes a great contrast, but it gets even better. Because being freed from sin, watch this, stay with me. Being freed from sin, we become sons and daughters of the house. Verse 35. The slave does not remain in the house forever, but the son does remain forever. Heaven is not Downton Abbey. The idiot who made that statement 
Better to reign in hell than to serve in heaven is an idiot. You know what happens when you get to heaven? Jesus said, the Son will come up and wait at your table. Jesus will serve you. When we get to heaven, brothers and sisters, we don't go as slaves. We go as sons and daughters. We go as heirs of eternal life because of what Jesus did. Free in Christ, you better believe it. A slave doesn't live in the house forever. Ultimately, they're let go. Ultimately, they're sent on their way. But the son, the son, the daughter gets to live in the house forever. And God is not looking for house servants. He is looking for sons and daughters who remain. Verse 36. So if the son makes you free, you will be free indeed. Only an heir is free forever. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. If we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. The blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. And you know what's amazing? And we're stopping right here for tonight. What's amazing to me is you have an adulterous woman who when it's all said and done, I truly believe that the Son made her free indeed. The adulteress ends up free. The religious Pharisee remains enslaved. It doesn't matter what either one of them did. It simply matters who they believe. I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. Lord Jesus, Lord, we prayed on Sunday that You would be in us as gushing torrents of living water, flowing rivers, a spring constantly welling up. We come to You asking for that, that that power, that anointing, not for ourselves, but for Your sake and for the lost, that we would just continue to overflow. We ask the same of You as the light of the world that You would so blaze in our lives that we would reflect You. That we would reflect Your glory. That when people look at us, they wouldn't see us. They would see the light of the world. They would see Jesus and find their salvation. And so, Father, I pray, give us voices that cry freedom to the lost. And I pray that You will heighten our sensitivity to those lost around us. Increase our passion, Lord. Even as the increase of Your Spirit brings us to a boldness we have not yet experienced. I keep praying for this. I pray for it tonight. In Jesus' name. Amen.